Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. The biggest thing you have to ask is, what is my edge that no one else seems to be aware of? Right. You always have to ask, why am I getting this opportunity and nobody else? No one wakes up and thinks to themselves, I got to make James Altucher rich today. Like, so if you're somehow getting an opportunity to make money, there's got to be a really good answer why it's you who's making it. So Warren Buffett has a good answer to that. He can say, I've read 8,000 financial reports for the past 10 years, and I'm the only person willing to drive to Iowa. I think there's something really important in what you're saying. You have to have some advantage, but where does it come from? I think people make a mistake. They think it comes from their head. I think they just think, oh, I have an insight and it comes to their head. I don't think that's right. I think what, and all the examples I think you've been saying support that people go out and they, they act in the world. They do something and then the world reacts in some way and they notice what it does. And then through that, they figure out something and that gives them the advantage. Anybody could have said that there's some company that's undervalued and there might be some shares that I could go convince farmers to sell me, but somebody actually went out and did it. I think that's part of what makes someone a great investor too. Just for fun, we're going to do who are the greatest investors of all time. I saw a video the other day that talked about this, and I was struck by how all these investment professionals, um, I I actually kind of agreed with some of their choices and some of their reasoning, but I was struck how maybe they didn't really know all the history and all the biographies to really decide, nor, and I thought it would be interesting also to discuss why should we want to know who the greatest investors of all time are, like what lessons can we potentially learn from them. I have with me, as usual, Steve Cohen, podcast producer extraordinaire, the man with all the quotes and all the sports (laughs) trivia. Steve promised he will keep words to only 15% of the words discussed. (laughs) And also, (laughs) Merrick He he generates a lot of words, so is that like a matter, you're measuring time or number of words? I always tell him, just take out every other word. Okay. <laughs> and then it's okay. And Merrick first uh, hasn't been on the podcast before. Merrick, thanks for coming on. Just as way of intro, your um, c- college dean extraordinaire. Oh, What's your actual title at Georgia Tech? I'm a distinguished professor at Georgia Tech. And I run an institute called the uh, Center for Deliberate Innovation. Right. So, and at that center, you've spa- you've, you've incubated many Yeah, we've companies. started 93 companies from scratch there. And and two you mentioned to me the other day have over a billion dollar valuations. Well, it's co- collectively they're about two point one billion at the moment. Right. So 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 uh, arguably you have an eye for good investments and yeah, no. and and value <laughs> and and finding people who who you're willing to invest in who who've created a lot of value for you. And I want to mention because I always do. You were the dean of students at Carnegie Mellon when I was at grad school there, and your signature is on the letter that threw me out. <laughs> I don't hold it against you. We've become but you best bring it friends up, since then. But you bring it up a lot. <laughs> I bring it up because it's so funny. That's funny. That, we're, that you're here instead of just crapping on me for sure. the past 30 years. No, not that way. 
Yeah. Why not? Why can't you just? Why couldn't you have just said, "Oh, this guy was using us"? And I don't know because that's not how I experienced you. I experienced you as like you were probably the smartest graduate student we had, and my my situation was the faculty was saying you got to kick this guy out because he's I don't care how smart he is, he's never showing up, and we're paying him a salary. And I feel like I saved you for like a year. I kept telling him it doesn't matter. Someday you'll do something really great in this area. When you figure out like how to, like like figure out how to, yeah that's that's we'll see <laughs> better than most of what everybody else has done, and then one day they said but you know what there are students who aren't we can't bring here because we don't have the salary because we're spending it on James whatever it was like seven thousand dollars a year whatever it was back yeah. then and so which, which, I couldn't, way, I couldn't I win so then I had to write you this letter but we were friends and actually one of the best things in my life was being able to figure out how to write you that letter and then stay friends and yeah because you know, you're one of my longest running friends and I appreciate that what did yeah. the letter say huh. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, James. No. <laughs> well, well, it took you that long you to write. That? Do you still have the letter? I, I don't. I don't. I uh, threw away all my belongings. Good. But um, oh, yeah. but but the 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 thing is, I I didn't fight the letter. I agreed with it actually. And then we we ran into a cafe. I was studying chess games and. Mm. And I we started playing chess and and so on. And then we've been uh, good I think friends. We had fr- I think we were friends before that. We were yeah. walking around talking about stuff. You had always yeah. wanted to be a writer. Yeah, you had other thoughts that you. You know, you were doing you had talents all over the place. And and we were talking the other day on the podcast about the Dunning Kruger effect, which is the bias that uh, you think you're good at something when you, people have a tendency to think they're better at something than they are, particularly things that they're well, passionate about. In some about. ways, they're so bad at it they don't even notice that they're bad. Right. So as a writer back in 1991, I was so bad, <laughs> but oh, I, I thought know. I should be published immediately. But uh. I was saying there's a positive aspect, which is that it kept me going until I finally turned a corner and started publishing. Yeah. Which took like ten years, but thanks to the but Dunning Kruger effect. But it wasn't you didn't actually have it. <laughs> I didn't oh, well, I mean well, Dunning Kruger, maybe. I think they're really, really bad at it. And they're so bad at it that they can't even notice that they're bad at it, and then they'll never get good at it. Yeah. That's so it's, a problem. One, it's one thing to mistake an actual talent, then maybe that keeps you going. Well, and by the way, with investing, a, a lot of people. Uh, I would say the average person on the street who's just started trading thinks they have an edge over everyone else. And I think to be a great investor, the, the the first rule of thumb is you always have to ask yourself, what is your edge? And so when we're looking at the best investors of all time, they must have had extreme edges to be better than the other billions of people on the planet. So, uh, or let's say millions of people who are trying to be good investors. So, uh, do you want to start off talking who are the greatest investors of all time? Well, if you want to go down that path, Charlie Munger would be a place to start. All right, so let's talk about Charlie Munger for a second. So, Char- Charlie, do you want to describe uh, who Charlie Munger is? Do you want me to? Part, well, partner of Warren Buffett, but you wrote the book. In fact, well, the I, first book I ever saw that you wrote, you came and you handed it to me, and it was how to trade like Warren Buffett, which yeah. I think, and I think I, the secret was he wasn't uh, trading. But uh, yeah, so why, you I, should probably start. I, I was thinking a more effective way to start. Oh, yeah, go. With all two deference is that like maybe talk about the impetus for this video like you saw them talk about this they mentioned five or six people right they mentioned five or six people and and then we can get into like the it was and and again i am not like their video was a good video i'm not um but and I kind of agreed with some of their choices and some of the four of the five. <laughs> hmm? I think you agreed with the four of the five. Maybe perhaps we should just talk about the five or six that they mentioned. Well, well and other people in the periphery, or maybe not. Yeah, we'll, we'll mention yeah. them throughout. Okay, so, fine. so, but, uh, but I was just uh, disturbed. Not disturbed, but I was thinking this would have been more interesting if they told us the lessons you can glean from each of these investors, like. Um, what yes. does a great investor mean? Because that was a little unclear. And also, they didn't really know 
a lot of the history and biographies of these investors and other investors who they could have considered. And I think it's important, not that you need to know every fact and we'll miss some facts here, but, but I think it's important in any industry that you want to be an expert in. And, you know, all of these people are professionals. I've yeah. been a professional investor for, for 20 years. You kind of want to know the history of what you're doing. So it reminds me, speaking of chess, it reminds me how when Bobby Fischer was 13 years old, he was, he was a, a good young chess player, but he wasn't the best. And he took a year off. All he did was study the history of the, of chess. He came back and he knew every single game, every single game played in the 1800s. So everyone was thinking, oh, these are, this is old school. We're going to beat him easily. But he worked on improvements on every single game yeah. and then won yeah. the U.S. championship at the age of 15. It was like amazing. See, he won like see, every game. See, I think, but that, I think that's why we got interested in things like who are the best five investors or why are you interested in Bobby Fischer? Because somehow they, they achieved something extraordinary. Then you have the sense that, well, that's actually something that, you know, I or someone else might want to achieve. And then how did they do that? Yeah. Was it just lucky or did they actually, so you're saying like well, Bobby Fischer must have had some talent, but then he moved away and he, and he focused on something and he came back with something. And you could, one could even, you know, you could imagine doing that yourself. I don't know that you would do that yourself. Because so I think the same thing is going on with these investors. Like when I listened to that same podcast, they were describing, like what they would describe Soros or they would describe Charlie Munger or somebody. And then you, they didn't get into the thing, which was like, how did they do it? Like what right. makes it possible? Like, and then right, the question what, is like, why are we interested in investors at all? It's like, because we all, you know, even if we only have a dollar, there's like some sense you could do something and more could come back. So it's like a human thing you want to do. And how do you get better at it? Right. Well, well, and, and what's interesting to me in the Bobby Fisher story, which is applies exactly to their video and these investors, these great investors knew the history of their professions. That's how they become the greatest. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at like artists, Andy Warhol doesn't say to himself, I think it would be really neat to paint a Campbell soup can. He knows the entire history of art and he asks himself, he was already the best illustrator in the world. He was working in the ad agency business and he was known as the best illustrator in the ad agency business. He was a great drawer or artist or whatever already. But he asked himself in just the history of art, what has not yet been done? And you know, the first thing he wanted to do was pixelated comic books, but then his buddy Roy Lichtenstein had just started doing it. So he's like, oh, I can't do that. And so that's when he switched to the Campbell soup can and he created pop art, becoming one of the greatest artists of all time. So knowing the history and knowing what you can do differently is what makes in any field someone great. And that particularly applies to these investors, but they didn't really um, scratch below the surface. They gave us the names, but they didn't say the lessons we can all learn related to this. Right. What was it that they did differently yeah, what, what can we do differently? How can we think differently? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you could imagine a basketball player. So you're 7-1. You, you can't teach someone else to be 7-1. But even but the people that are unbelievably great, there is this sense that they've become deliberate about it. There's like something that they've noticed about how they're going about it and maybe about how other people have gone about it. Then they become deliberately better. Well, and we can address this because yeah. remember when John Wallace was on the podcast? Yeah. John Wallace played for the Knicks. And John Wallace was... I think like six nine, yeah, seven like oh. six eight, six nine, yeah. And he said there's plenty of six foot eight, six foot nine people bagging groceries. Yeah. And he went to his mentor, coach every single day, showed up at seven in the morning with a basketball, lost, would play him in basketball, lost every day for like six years in a row, and then finally started beating him. Boom. Then he was on the New York Knicks. So here's a weird question. So uh, investing just requires like, perhaps having capital and a place to put it. So unlike basketball where you got to be like tall, perhaps 
So can anyone become the world's greatest investor if they only figure out how to do it? Um, if they figure out how to do it, but that's a big if. That's a big if, yeah. right? Because you have to have that edge. You have to say, what makes me? What can I do that nobody else is doing? And and everybody else or everybody else is afraid to do. So it's sort of like that Peter Thiel question: What do I believe that no one else believes? I think that's the question. I don't know the exact. But question. the other thing, you know, to Merrick's point, though, like those investors that they picked, they utilize a lot of different strategies too. Like yes. they have Jim Simons, who is a quant, or the people do high frequency trading, or you know. But yes, I and I think Merrick and I were talking earlier about you could definitely be better than you are, right? Like, you know, like you could, we could all learn a lot. You can become a better investor. You may not be able to be like them. And a lot of what those people did, whether it's Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger or, or George Soros, who they mentioned, like it doesn't apply now. Like it's a different environment. No, that's right. But it's just yeah. like, it's just like tennis, yeah. right? Jimmy Connors, who's one of the greatest tennis players of all time. If you put him on a tennis court, even the, the Jimmy Connors at his peak from like 1977, yeah. if you put him on a, tennis court right now against the t best tennis player of all time, he would lose every point. Yeah. It's just, it's just, you know, Picasso did something different than Warhol. All of these investors that we're about to talk about did something different, but it's more the process sure. of what makes a great investor and what can you learn from it and why, why, where did they go that nobody else was willing to go? Cause I think to your point, Merrick, you said, okay, you have, you have money, you put it and, and, and you have something to invest in and then you start to get better at it, but you have to kind of go where nobody else is going to be the greatest, to be well, the especially, one that's uh, I mean, ahead. But, and, and investing in particular, especially if you're like in a situation where it's zero sum. So if you're in a place where a trade is, there's a winner and a loser on the trade, then you have to go someplace where other people aren't going because you have to be on the winning side of the trade and the other people are on the other side of the trade. Yeah, but not, but think, not all investing is like that. Right. So That's, that's right. And uh, because also the market in general has gone up, so not everyone has lost for everybody who's won. So it's not totally zero sum, but you'll see in the cases of some of these investors, they took advantage of zero sum situations to make the most amount of money. Um, but I, I'll, I'll narrowly define investor, by the way, we're not talking about venture capitalists because that's only for a certain group of people. We're not talking about people who invest in private companies. We're talking about specifically people. So you've taken who, off the table almost everything that I know about, by the way. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but, but the concept of, of value and going to places where nobody else is going still applies. It's just, I'm not, I'm just excluding this group from the list. Because okay. I can't emulate, for instance, what um, certain things that Ron Conway, who invested early in Google, did because I don't. But I, 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 I'm going to say oh. I'm going to tell you like, we're going to get there. But I, right. I bet the kinds of things you have to think about the thing, the way you go about these things uh, actually is the same across the board. I, uh, so I, agree, uh, I and, agree with that. And, and since and I've seen it more there, I might just bring it up, even if you tell yeah. me I can't. So no, no, you can bring you yeah. can bring up because I think the philosophies apply equally. Yeah. Um, it's just the list itself. I think uh, is is just because I think the average person on the street can listen to this and see people. Who also were at one time the average person have, on the street. I didn't realize you had average listeners, by the way. That just <laughs> never occurred to me. They're very special, okay. which is why I think they can become the greatest investors, but they can't always move to Silicon Valley and invest yeah. in private companies. But Warren Buffett was living in Omaha, Nebraska, right. and somehow became, you know, yeah. we can argue it, but it's on my list as number one, uh, even though. But I don't, I don't know that much about it. But weren't a lot of his investments in private, in private? situations that he just invest in publicly traded stocks uh he, he always invested in publicly traded stocks particularly in the beginning of his career not not didn't, as much now did not know that now he he still does not invest well we can we can go over it there's there's yeah. nuances but in the begin in the first 10 years of his career say his, his which you can argue is 
the the greatest increase in his wealth before he was a billionaire. When you just go from zero, all right. So let's to start. There. Can, can we start there? Because yeah. this is like getting back to Steve's point. Okay, so that's what he did for the first ten years. Can he still work? Win at that? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. Right. And so, so what changed? Well, what changed was uh, okay. I'll give you an example. So with Warren Buffett specifically, because you mentioned Charlie Munger, which was phase two of his career, which we could talk about, but. Um, Warren Buffett was specifically interested in what Benjamin Graham, the who some consider the greatest investor of all time, but I would disagree. Uh, Warren, Benjamin Graham was his mentor and friend, and Warren Buffett applied his idea of buying cigar butt stocks. So a cigar butt stocks, a cigar butt is something you know you pick off a cigar butt off the sidewalk and it still has one puff left in it. So Warren Buffett, people think he's a buy and hold value investor; he holds forever. He would buy these companies that basically were, were had more in basically cash or liquid assets than they were worth on the stock market, and he would basically wait for them or pressure them to liquidate the company. So he, so let's say they were worth fifty million in terms of what they can liquidate, like they could sell it. They have a big garage sale and get fifty million, but they were all trading on the stock market for twenty million. Mm. He would buy those and pressure them to liquidate and then get out with his two and a half X return. But what's interesting is he didn't just, so you could say, why can't a you, two questions you ask, why didn't everybody do that then? Or, and B, why can't people do that now? Both. I don't, you didn't ask those, but both are reasonable. <laughs> <questions. laughs> those are the questions I was going to ask. I'll ask him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so here's what he would do. This is yeah. fascinating. He would, first off, he read there wasn't any internet, obviously. He would get on paper all of the financial reports of right. thousands of companies that were public. And all these companies, they weren't like big companies that represented by banks. No one was representing them. They were like barely public. And and he would see, oh, here's this company located in Iowa that has a bunch of farm equipment. And if they just sell all the farm equipment and land that they own, they'll be I can get more money back than if I buy the whole company. So he would go to that town. He would he would borrow like a ride from a friend of his and they would drive to this town in Iowa and he would put up signs because he would figure the shareholders probably lived in the town. He would put up signs. If you own shares of XYZ wow. farm company, call me. I'm staying at this hotel for the next two days. I'll buy them from you. He would usually buy them at a discount because nobody could sell them. On the, nobody was buying them on the stock hmm. market. They were, they were as called trade by appointment. Like they had no volume. Nobody knew about them. And he would literally buy as many shares as he could in like two or three days, go home and then start pressuring the company to liquidate. And he made all so he was doing money. So he was doing all sorts of things. I mean, it wasn't just straight investing. Like he was figuring things out. And of yes. course in the public markets, it's a lot harder to have an ed information advantage now because there's so many, these stocks people are spending who knows how much money trying to figure out like what's happened. I mean, there are people who are putting up satellites and watching uh, uh, the, the parking, parking lots, lots yeah. to be able to figure things out. So you're trying to compete with that kind of information gathering. But you're saying he was able to do that because he would like go there. Right, so he had and an then edge the second, that he read all the financial And course. then he was willing to try to acquire the shares in a way that nobody could acquire them. Right, so like you had steps. to physically go there. Right. So he was the only person physically going there. Amazing. And, and, th and then he would put on pressure to actually cause the thing, cause right. some transaction to happen. Right, he would put on pressure. In fact, a famous story with um, a little-known um, textile company in Maine. They made like shirts or cloths or whatever. And he he figured if they just liquidated all their assets, their manufacturing facility and so on, they would be worth, uh, I'm going to make up numbers, but they would be worth $7 and now the stock's trading for 5 He'd go there, buy up all as many shares as he could for 5 He'd pre He'd pressure the CEO to do like a stock buyback at 6 and 
he would do this over and over again. And the guy would buy back for six and and, and he then, then the stock would still trade at five. He'd buy more shares at five. He'd pressure again. And then one time the CEO said, you know what, Warren, we've done enough of this. It's six and a quarter now. I'm making up the numbers. I think it was actually yeah. seven and a quarter. He said, Warren, it's six and a quarter. And Warren's like, no, no, we've always done six. Don't change it. And he's like, no, it's going to be six and a quarter. The CEO said, so Warren Buffett bought all the, he bought 51% of the shares of the company. He fired the CEO. He took over the company. It's called Berkshire Hathaway. And then he started buying other companies completely in different industries. Amazing. So yeah. So, so that's, that was Warren I, Buffett. I didn't know the end of that story. We go back to just yeah. the beginning of the story because I, this is something I didn't know about venture world until I spent a lot more time in it. And it was like hard to figure this out, but they, they're that the ones that are the best do it like that. They they spend this enormous amount of time trying to find some thing about a company or a, an industry or a market or a product. Then they and they do that like on the ground. They actually go out meet the customers. They then they find the person that has the shares. That is the startup that actually has the shares. Then they convince that startup to sell them the shares. So it's just like going there and trying to yeah. buy the shares. But then they have to be involved in the exit. That they find a way to like buy an acquire, find an acquirer, or find a, a a bank that will take them out to a public market. So the best the best venture investors are doing that thing that you described that Warren Buffett. But all parts you you talk to people and say, yeah, we bought into this deal, but you know they didn't have the capacity to like force them to exit or make the exit happen. They don't make money. Well, part of it obviously is like that they are reducing the risk and they're reducing the chance aspect of it. If Warren Buffett yes. is involved in all of those things, there he's feeling like. Hey, you know, and James and I have discussed this before, just about like these people aren't as risk as risk. You know, they're they're more risk averse than one would think, right? Right, right. Yeah. Like a lot of people think entrepreneurship and investing is taking a risk, when in fact the best investors and the best entrepreneurs and the best venture capitalists, their job is to remove ninety nine percent of the risk. Right. Warren Buffett actually was so risk averse, he wouldn't invest in the company unless he knew he could just straight up liquidate their well, well, it was a good idea. You could buy it and you could get rid of it. Right? Right. All of these things are involved in, in investments. And so, so your question of like, why can't you do it now? You, you sort of can do it now, but you have to kind of upgrade to the future. So you say, well, okay, um, this technology probably is going to work based on the research I've done. And there's a market of X for it. So right now it's worth less than some discounted version of that market. Um, but that's but the opportunities I'm, I'm are less. I guess what I'm thinking is the opportunities are less. So there's so much more yes. information available. There's so many more people who have become sophisticated and they've prof they've so professionalized the way that he went about it. Right. Like like just doing what he did. Like right now on the internet, I can do a search. What companies are worth less than their liquid assets? And some companies will come up. But you'll find when you dig deeper into those companies, there's a reason why they're worth less than those assets. Like mm. maybe those assets are hard to sell. Maybe there's a, a lawsuit against them. There's there's always now there's no easy. It wasn't easy for him either because you had, he had to read thousands of financial documents to really, and then he had to understand what the farm market in Iowa was like to understand what the cost, what 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 the potential exits were. But uh, so it wasn't easy for him. But to even do what he did is impossible now. You have to figure out some way to upgrade that. But he upgraded it a little bit. You mentioned Charlie Munger earlier. So Munger and Buffett um, were very similar in that. Uh, they they were very consistent in their beliefs. They were very, uh, 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 you know, they were always looking for for value. But Munger had a different definition of value than Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham. Munger uh, said you have to include uh, uh, the the value of a brand, which is intangible, um, when you're making an assessment of value. And so, 
Buffett didn't really agree with him, but they talked every day on the phone. And then one time, Buffett, in and this was the, the biggest investment Buffett ever made as a percentage of his net worth. One time there was a scandal. It was called the salad oil scandal. American Express insured some... I won't get into all the details, but they had a scandal that many people, many people thought was going to ruin American Express. And so Warren Buffett, uh, listening to Charlie Munger, went to the local steakhouse, sat behind the cash register and saw how many people were paying for their meals with American Express. And he realized, oh, this is a powerful brand. People are not giving up using this just because of this weird scandal. And so he put a third of his hedge fund into American Express. I forget what he made specific on it because he sold th throughout but he made an enormous amount of money for his hedge fund investors and for himself. And that was really the one biggest investment. People think, oh, Coca-Cola is his biggest investment because he made 10 billion on it. The biggest increase in his net worth was due to this American Express investment. I did not know that. Yeah. And yeah, it was so only when he started taking Munger's advice that that brand has value. And that led to later investments in the Washington Post, Coca-Cola, and many of the investments that have made him famous. Yeah, so I mean, so Munger uh, Munger gave a talk at uh, Harvard Business School, which is on uh, you can find it on YouTube. I think it's about misjudgment. It changed my life hearing how he talked about that. Do you, do you kind of know that? I mean, this. I no, wonder, I I wonder how Brand comes into it. I mean, he, he, here's you know, in, in a nutshell, you should go watch read watch him say it because he says it so much more clearly. He said, "Here here's the problem with trying to buy things." Uh, in a market is that it's basically the prices are kind of right because it's a paramutual. Like the, the value of something that you're willing to buy is like what willing, someone's willing to sell it to you. So if you want to make money on a mispricing, you have to assume that someone's making a mistake. And how do those mistakes show up? And I guess if you, you know, go back and think about what, um, what Buffett might have been doing at the beginning is he wasn't, it wasn't so much mistakes, he was actually figuring something out that people didn't know. But right, so, so it wasn't quite a mistake, but it was like, they're either a mistake or there was a gap in knowledge. Yeah. Gap so, in knowledge, but another edge is like somebody needs to sell right away. And, you know, they know right. they're selling it. Low. And, that's a, and that's a different yeah. thing. So, what Munger yeah. is saying is that human beings make misjudgments, they yeah. have cognitive errors. I mean, it's like before Kahneman and, and Tversky and, and that whole world of understanding, making um, errors in judgment, situations of uncertainty. And he said, if you can find situations in which people are making yeah. cognitive errors, they just don't see the world right. And what are some of those things? Like you're too close to it, so you can't, you know, too close to well, I know screen, you, you can't see the whole. Well, you believe Theranos. I mean, you buy. In, I mean, yeah. there's there's a whole mirage that makes someone that makes a group of people believe that something is true, which but is just not true. But that's an emotional reason. Oh, also, well, here's a common you're saying mistake. it's emotional, but I think emotion oh. doesn't have to feel. It doesn't have to feel like anything. It just feels like you're being right. There's no. Oh, interesting. There's no feeling to being right. There's a yeah. feeling to being wrong, but there's no feeling to be right. And so you don't have to say like they're caught up in it. Well, okay, they're caught up in it. But if they could notice they were caught up in it, then they wouldn't necessarily be caught up in it. it you know, and also there's people want people make mistakes because also they want shortcuts. Like notice in this yeah. Buffett case, he didn't really take a shortcut at all. There was no way he could have cut out any piece of what he did. Yeah. But people want to say, oh, because of this chart and it broke through this chart, I could buy it. And right. They never really study the science or statistics about whether they're going to be right or wrong. They just read it in a book. If you break through this moving average on a chart, yeah. you're probably going to have a buy. And so they make investment decisions off of wrong premises about how to invest as opposed to, and I'm not saying whether that works or not, by the way, it doesn't work, but so now <laughs> I just said it, but <laughs> you could statistically analyze by looking at the data and, and writing software or studying software that looked at the data and see if those strategies work. But many people don't do that. And those are the types of mistakes people make because they want shortcuts. That's one type of investment mistake. 
Right. And so, I mean, but Munger's, I think Munger's point was, if you want to be a great investor, one way to think about it is how can you get your head straight? So how can you recognize that the opportunity shows up when you are right and someone else is wrong? Yeah, so and, how do you do that considering most people, to your point, always well, think they're right? <laughs> so maybe, and maybe they are always right. I and mean, that's sort of his point is that they more or less are always right because the prices are set in this parimutuel way. And we kind of agree on what the price is, therefore that's what the price is. And so, right, and, th- and that's I the theory the, that the market is, you know, behaves in a rational way. So, so well, no, that's a different question because the market behaving in the rational way would say that the pricing is actually what the price should be according to some actual value of the underlying thing. Let's say discounted cash flow. That's different than saying the pricing is right in the sense of well, if we've all agreed on what the price is, then that's what the price is. So even if and and so I can't make an advantage on it. And I, I think what's going on, I mean, I, I don't know this directly, of course, but my sense is that it's become harder because people are making these errors less. So I've talked to people at, at, at big investment companies, I shouldn't ma- name the names, and they said, you know, here's the thing with the stock market. You throw darts at the stock market, as you point out, it goes up. That's not good decision-making. If you can make slightly better decisions all the time, you can make a lot of money. So what's a slightly better decision? It's a question of, that's that's sort of the heart of it. Like, what makes you make a wrong decision? Like, you... You know, classic thing is you think you're right, and so why do you think you're right? Because everything in, that you see in the world reminds you that you're right. It's called confirmation bias. How does that? How does that work? I mean, it's weird. Your brain literally only notices the things that confirm. Like the minute you, like, I'll just show you how it could have been true for for Warren Buffett. He saw people paying with American Express. Then every time he saw someone paying with American Express, he would convince himself he was right. But, but that's a big mistake because what you then don't notice is all the people that are paying with other credit cards. And you just right. think you're right. And so w- with something like that, you could get the whole world making a mistake because once they notice something, that's all they notice. And they don't notice the disconfirmations. So here's a way you could have an advantage. Everybody's saying one thing. You see all the examples. Force yourself to go look for the disconfirmations and see if maybe they're all wrong. And if they're not necessarily right, then there maybe there's an opportunity. But I think that's an example of the kind of thing that Charlie Munger said. There's like a few mental models. You can learn what those mental models are and they extend you in good stead. But it's unbelievably hard to actually operate that way. So I wonder if Buffett and Munger's, I mean, they would have daily conversations for years at this point when this American Express thing took place. I wonder if Buffett had kind of the mental armor in place. I'm to, sh- well, I'm sure Munger did. And Because, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like he said, oh, yeah, American Express is a good investment. Let's just try it. So I'll experiment with this. He put a third of his fund in it, which is insane. Right. He might even put more. But but this was the biggest. If he if this risk didn't work out, because people thought at the time American Express was going to go bankrupt. So if this risk didn't work out, he would have been out of business. And we talked about him being risk averse. He that wasn't his style of psychology to do this. So how many of the investors that you would think of as the greatest investors of all time ever put themselves in a place where on a single bet they could have lost it all? Um, I mean, I would say in the top 10, there's probably a few. Like so that, George Soros putting most of his fund into shorting the British pound in the early 90s. So I think almost by definition, that means that they can't be one of the greatest investors. They may have had one of the greatest outcomes, but I think they can't be one of the greatest investors because that move right there is such an irrational move because you can't control outcome. Yeah, except... Uh, so... Maybe I'm just thinking I'm right, so I'm now trying to find confirmation. <laughs> you so, are, so yes, you're right. Li- li- no, li- you're right. But listing the, the the greatest investors of all time, there's some um, 
what does it call uh, uh, survivorship bias? Because these are the ones we know about. All the all the great investors who eventually went broke. We don't are not being well, considered for this list. Uh, but one of them they mentioned, um, you know, I'm trying in the 30s where he like made a hundred million, then lost it. Oh, Jesse Livermore, who killed himself after he went bankrupt. I thought like you might have a special place in your heart for him. <laughs> Not because he no, killed himself. No, actually, because first off, I've read all the books about Jesse Livermore, and yeah. so I know his story. I don't actually agree with his trading philosophy. And I think a lot, like I considered another investor from the time, actually from a slightly earlier time, which was uh, Bernard Baruch, who was a great investor. But back then, the laws around insider trading um, were a lot different. And so I kind of put a cutoff for myself, even though he probably was within the boundaries of what was considered legal then, legal arbitrage then. Um, I don't, I think yeah. he had advantages that are so far from what we have access to today and that were kind of unfair advantages that he was able to pay for, that even though he was a great investor, great philanthropist, probably a great human being, I don't know, um, I don't include him on my list. But to your question, like if they made a big risk, what I really want to understand is how they, the important thing is how they took the risk out of it before disqualifying them for taking a big yeah, risk. Yeah, so I like that. So, but I, I just, I was making this thing. So, right, so it's hard to not, I think it's all about risk management. Uh, th yes. that just seems right to me. Which is and, which is which is why, and, and I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but like they, at the video, they may, they were kept debating Stanley Druckenmiller, who, if people don't know, um, his fund Duquesne has never had a down year. He also was the chief trader for George Soros. He was the chief trader who actually physically placed the bet uh, against the British pound, which made a billion dollars for Soros. So many people consider him the greatest investor of all time. But using that same philosophy of when you think something is a big investment, you should bet big. They they bet big uh, on tech stocks at the exact wrong time and lost billions. And that's when uh, Drucker Miller left uh, Soros's fund and, start, and just focused on his own fund. And that's why he can say he quote unquote never had a down year because he didn't stay the year. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, so that's why, that was when I was thinking, huh, they don't really know all the issues here. And to your point, yes, that's when the big, taking the big bet. And Julian Robertson at the Tiger Fund, also considered one of the best, also bet incorrectly on tech stocks at the wrong time, uh, also had some severe down years because of that. I didn't include him on my list either. But Buffett seemed to um, get rid of his risk in various ways. He understood American Express's assets, plus their brand value, plus maybe yeah. I'm assuming- but, but I'm saying, and it's gotta be and, it's gotta like, you, you reduce the risk on whether or not it's even a good choice. That is, there's, yes. you, you sort of make it go that's going to go up as opposed to go down. But then you have to take off the risk of going broke. Yeah. So then how much you bet, what fraction of your portfolio you bet, how much you hang out there. Well, because well, otherwise... There's got to be some information content in that as well, though. Yeah. Because, and, like, for instance, I can put all my money on the S&P 500, and I know I'm not going to go broke if I do that. I might go down, but I'm not going to go broke. Right. So he he had some knowledge of the risk in this, like what their assets were that they could liquidate and so on, that he knew he wasn't going to at least go broke. That's my assumption based on his prior history right. of investing. I'm just saying, you, gotta add, you have to include that in any conversation about great investors that you don't want to include a great investor who somehow made a ridiculous amount of money after putting themselves in a position where they could have gone broke. Because so, that's so, not a good investor, that's just someone who had a good outcome. So so let's skip, to, let's skip forward 45 years on Warren Buffett and he takes the same approach but in a completely different mode. The, the U.S. markets were falling apart 2008 all the banks were supposedly going bankrupt. Uh, he put, I forget the exact number, he put billions and billions of dollars into Goldman Sachs, which was at risk of going bankrupt. Right. But he didn't just 
He didn't just invest in the stock. He called up the seat. This is why I don't like this particular bet in the what's the world's greatest investor, but it's the same philosophy. He called up the CEO, Lloyd Blankfein. He worked out his deal, which is, uh, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to buy some X percentage of the company, but I want the highest preferred debt, meaning if you go bankrupt, I'm the first person who gets to liquidate yeah, all so of your assets. he's protecting himself. And I get a 9% dividend, which was insane, um, but at they gave time, it to him. Yeah. And I get to convert my shares at this incredibly low price. So he made billions and billions on it and helped Goldman Sachs out at a hard time. But he wouldn't have, it was too risky to invest in the stock. He would not have done that. He knew they had enough assets. He would have made his money back or at least not gone broke from it. Right. So, so again, it's the same style, but that's not open to the yeah, average so you, investor. So you, right. So you're controlling the investment. So yeah. even there, he's controlling his way out. Like, he's like, paying attention at the investment moment to finding a way to make sure that he can get his money out of he, when he, when he needs to. Or. Kind of like a magician would. Like when you, uh, they say pick a card, any card, and you it's pick a, a card, they know what card you're going to pick. Right. Right, maybe they've swapped. They've showed you the deck. It's got all fifty-two cards. Then they quickly swap the deck. So it's okay, only so got there's the seven there's, there's misjudgment, right? So that's a beautiful example of misjudgment. So the person who's like on the other side of the magic trick thinks they've picked a they've picked a random card, and then it seems amazing when the uh, when the magician reveals the card. Like, how could you have known? Well, how could he not know? Because he told you which card. So you're saying. So you're saying in, in that case, investments. The mis misjudgment is the investors. The good investor is making a buy that the other person is amazed when it actually turns out right but the but he sort of forced it to turn out right right because like think about when warren buffett did announce this uh i was actually at cnbc at the moment warren buffett announced this at cnbc announced that he was doing this and goldman sachs stock the regular stock started shooting up i would say those people buying goldman sachs then were making mistakes because they were assuming oh if warren's in it it's good but they didn't have the same deal they didn't have the same deal as him so they were making a misjudgment now it worked out for them too fortunately because Warren Buffett's so let's talk about that a, misjudgment because I think that's the that's I think that's at the heart of it. So how how did that misjudgment happen? So they saw something which they interpreted in one way. It's confirmation bias. They saw you know yes. if this if the stock is worth something, then I would see someone like Warren Buffett buying it. Now I see someone like Warren Buffett buying it, and therefore I think well that's that's evidence that it's worth something. But the disconfirmation is what they're missing. Is that they don't go and check, for example, that maybe there's some reason that Warren Buffett's buying something different than what they're buying, right. and not something else. And, and also, they they were probably making the the correct assumption that look, ultimately Buffett wanted to make a lot of money on the investment, but he was protecting his downside. So he 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 probably we never know what he was thinking, but he probably still thought, look, there's a lot of value here, but I still need to protect the yeah. investment, so I'm not going to buy the common. They're probably thinking, okay. He probably sees a lot of upside, so it's good enough to buy the common. So the question is, if they only put a small amount of the portfolio in, that might have been a good judgment. But they put if they put a big amount, thinking only thinking if Warren did it, I should do it and put all my money in it. That would probably be a mistake. Okay, so but at the very least, we can agree that like the people who bought following Warren, they weren't great investors. Right. Warren was a great investor because he may have actually figured out something to do, and these guys could have turned out to be bad investors. I mean, they, if you evaluate their investment based on the fact, well, they actually did make money because there was some information, it could have also turned out there wasn't enough information. If they didn't go to do the work, see, I, I think the part that's missing here is how much work does it take well, right. to actually figure out whether or not you might be wrong? Well, well, I, and but, I think that's really important here. But Right, so I'm, I'm agreeing with you because I say I'm assuming they didn't do the work, but I'm hoping they didn't take the risk either. 
So right. maybe they maybe they only put a small per, like one percent of their portfolio. No, whereas and, Buffett and, might and, have done and that, and that balances and that balances the risk on like you don't go broke. So at the very least, you should do that. But but the other day at dinner, you said something that I thought was really interesting. I hadn't heard you say this before. That you something's changed for you, which is you think you can tell when something's a fraud now that you couldn't necessarily tell was a fraud before. That yeah. there were times when you're making investments before that that ended up being somewhat fraudulent. So how does that but, fit but, into but this? But also, I combine that with knowing that I'm, I'm susceptible to being convinced. I'm yeah. easily convinced. So I knew that when I would meet the, the, the people in question, they would convince me they weren't fraud. So I had to have outside protection reminding me why I thought they were fraud initially. Yeah, and I don't mean to keep sounding the same note, but I think that's the heart of it. It's like part of being a great investor is seeing a situation for what it actually is like and being able to know the difference between the ones that are real and the ones that aren't real. And the problem with being a, a, an average investor or a bad investor is you're betting on things where you don't actually see what it's like. And the great investors are all people, we've, we describe them as either they went out and did some work to figure something out, or if you talk about Soros, he's like making some, he sees something macro and he's betting on some, something macro. I think that's at the heart of being a great investor is going to do the work to see the world the way it actually is. Yes, and I agree. So, so we, we have to end soon, so I want to get to the, uh, the second Greatest investor, even though you honestly, or we can make this all about Warren Buffett because no, that, no, who's there's, the second? Yeah. There's material all about we could talk for, about Warren Buffett forever because he is the greatest yeah. investor of all time and he's been involved in so many different investments. Right. I noticed, I noticed in your comments, you know, you talked about how okay, I wouldn't include Charlie Munger by himself because he had some big failures. Right. right. So, so Charlie Munger was clearly a genius. I'll look up that Harvard it's talk, still, for instance. Yeah. His works, uh, his theories of lattice work, how how different domains intersect to kind of create. Um, we've talked we've talked about this in other contexts, but how you intersect different ideas to become really knowledgeable at the intersection, and you bet on that, and you have an edge. Um, I want to look at that video. But Charlie Munger was so stubborn in some ways about his ideas that he stuck to them sometimes against other yeah. evidence. So in his last four years of his fund in 1973 and 1974, Buffett was pulling back. He knew, I happen to know that he knew in advance a recession was coming. At least that was his theory. Who knows if, what he knew or whether he mm. knew he was right, but his theory was there was a recession coming. He actually shut down his hedge fund, moved everybody um, into Berkshire Hathaway if they wanted to be or into another fund that he recommended. He shut down his investment business, moved the ring to Berkshire Hathaway and basically laid low for a while. Munger kept his investment partnership open um, and lost 31% in 1970, 32% in 1973, 31% in 1974, just big losses. Like that's, you know, compounded, that's like 70 or 80% of his investors' money. And then finally he shut down his partnership when he got his ne nearest or newest investors back to even. So that disqualified him for me. That's interesting. Otherwise, I would say, yeah, he's probably one of the top five. But now and he's what not was his error in judgment again? Like he just stuck. He thought he could still find value um, in a situation where essentially the world was falling apart. Like the U.S. was having a recession, there was inflation, and there was an oil crisis, and it was re it was much more difficult to find stocks that so were gonna um, be be that you could hold on to and win. Which, which now it's, I'm just reminding, it's like every example we're thinking about is examples like at some margin, like the whole market's going to fall apart or some macro thing is going to happen or there's one company that's going to like be in really big trouble. Is that where the greatest investors always are? They find their way to the place where, because that wasn't true, for example, for Simons. I mean, Simons didn't need to have a, a catastrophic event, like Correct. a black swan event that he was going to then bet on. He found that there was inefficiencies across a 
I believe, some inefficiencies across a broad swath of things. Then he had these sort of micro-investments at, at scale. Right, so, so that's why I have Jim Simons as number two, because he has a 100% different approach from mm. Warren Buffett. By the way, short story, I was emailing back and forth with Jim Simons like 10 years ago, and he was very interested in the work I was doing because I was doing similar stuff to do using software to right, model the market. testing stuff. And finally he said, oh, you got your PhD at Carnegie Mellon, right? And I said, no, I was thrown out by Dr. Merrick first. Thanks. And, <laughs> so and, I ruined your life so many ways. And he said, I'm That's really fine. sorry, we only hire PhDs. But Is that true? true? That's story. a true story? True story. So, That's but, funny. But, uh, we uh, hire Merrick. <laughs> That's very funny. But, but these, and I really was like, oh, darn, I really want But um, he was great because he defined, he created an entirely new area of investing that didn't exist before, noticing that there were these arbitrages, these spreads between a stock's statistical value, which he defined. I mean, he was like a Nobel level mathematician mm -hmm. and what, what they were trading at. And so he was able to mathematically model where entire countries' markets should be based on their interest rates, the value of their stocks and so on. And he would like short Canada and go long the U.S., the currencies would buy some of the stocks to hedge. So he 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 created an entirely new area of investment. So, so the, the point of him is, and the point of Buffett is, go to the place where nobody else is going. Yeah. Nobody else is going to the middle of Iowa and putting up signs to buy stocks. When Jim Simons was, came around in the, uh, when, when he came around, is nobody else was in that space at all yeah, yeah. Of, of using computers, which were fairly new for doing data analysis like this. Uh, no one was using computers to do this sort of analysis. I remember we had a guy who uh, I went, was maybe one class ahead of me at grad school. Jim Simons picked him up. I, I remember thinking like we were making a stipend of like you said seven thousand a year. And this guy tells me I quit graduate school. And I said, Why'd you quit? I'm more, I'm going to go work for this guy, Jim Simons. This is um, 1991 or something. He's offering me three hundred thousand a year plus bonus. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh my god. And I told my mother this was in the computer business. She's like, that's impossible. Nobody plays that, pays that for a programmer. And I'm like, no, he's serious. I forget yeah, the guy's yeah, name. Yeah, several students. I know who it was. We'll talk about him later. Yeah, he, I think he got thrown out of Renaissance later. He did. And he went over to uh, David Shaw's uh, shop. And I actually just talked. I, I think I know who you're talking about. We'll talk oh, about it later. Oh, you know what? He started with Shaw. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, yeah. So, yeah. but, but, because if, if it's Shaw, the same guy, he was actually a, um, a Mormon missionary before he did all this. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know who yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, D.E. Shaw followed, uh, uh, Jim Simons in doing this. Then right. Cl Cliff Asnes at AQR followed. So, so Jim Simons created an entire industry, and that's how he was able to make. 31% a year for his first God knows and, how many decades. You know, but, but, he, but he showed up at a time when people saying efficient market, Bernard, you know, Malkiel yes. was saying that you can't make money. You were earning Nobel but, Prizes but, but, here, but here's the thing, it's like what you know that ain't so. That's, I think that's at the heart of a lot of this stuff. So, you know, what you know that ain't so is what you can go figure out by going out and to Iowa, like if you're yeah. Warren Buffett. That's, I think, the puzzle. is like if what you know ain't so or what they know and so, and that's how they're trading. You can make money as an investor by knowing actually what's there, which might what be what's actually so. So there's the puzzle. Like, how do you find out about what you know that ain't so? If you notice it, well, everybody else can notice it. Then you have no advantage. Well, right. It, I feel like I should contribute a quote. Isn't Buffett's quote like, "Be fearful when everybody's greedy, and greedy when everybody's fearful." I mean, that is going across a grain. Yes, so that's not what they all do, really, and yeah. that's what even the software models is. They're able to model subtle times when when people mm. are, are fearful, fearful or greedy. What Warren Buffett... So, every, so that's why it's really important. The biggest thing you have to ask is, what is my edge that 
no one else seems to be aware of. Right. Because when and that's how you know something's a fraud is if you always have to ask, why am I getting this opportunity and nobody else? Because if there isn't a really great answer, no one wakes up and thinks to themselves, I got to make James Aldrich rich today. Yeah. Like, so if you're some somehow getting an opportunity to, to make money, there's got to be a really good answer why it's you who's making it. So Warren Buffett has a good answer to that. I He can say, I've read 8,000 financial reports for the 10, past 10 years, and I'm willing to drive. I'm the only person willing to drive to Iowa. Jim Simons could say, I'm a, a Nobel level mathematician, and I'm going to apply all my knowledge. I'm going to be the first person to apply all of his knowledge to stocks and see what happens. He didn't know. Oh, there's this advantage. Let's take into account yeah. fees. There's this advantage. Uh, okay, I got to jump in there because I, I think there's something really important in what you're saying, which is you have to have some advantage, but where does it come from? I think people make a mistake. They think it comes from their head. I think they just think, oh, I have an insight and it comes from their head. I don't think that's right. I think what, and all the examples I think you've been saying support that, which of course is confirmation bias. People go out and they, they act in the world. They do something and then the world reacts in some way and they notice what it does. And then through that, they figure out something and that gives them the advantage. So in yes. every situation, like Jim Simon, anybody could have said, there are probably zillions of mathematicians that could have said, you know, there's some arbitrage opportunity, but you, but he, but they didn't go and get the data and run the models and try it. Anybody could have said that there's some company that's undervalued and there might be some shares that I could go convince farmers to sell me, but somebody actually went out and did it. I think that's part of what makes someone a great investor too. Yeah. So, so, so years or decades of experience, don't forget Buffett trained under Benjamin Graham, who was probably the greatest investor at that time. Yeah. And by the way, the reason Graham didn't hire Buffett permanently is because Buffett was not Jewish. And Graham specifically said to Buffett, all the other firms are not hiring Jewish people. So I have to hire only Jewish people to keep the balance. So unfortunately, Warren, I can't hire you. So Warren Buffett went back to Omaha and started his business and history was made. But Warren had a, a decade or two of experience investing already, mm. giving, and he was in Omaha, a way di artificially disconnected from Wall Street where supposedly the information flow happened. So he had to find his information in a unique way. Jim Simons was also coming from another world, had to find his information in a unique way. But I, I want to mention just two things to, to close. One is, this just reminded me, you were offered a job to run the quant desk, I think, at... Kidder Peabody. Kidder Peabody, Yeah, okay. like the year before they collapsed. It was pretty funny. And it was right around that time, too. Yeah, I was going to be you, chief computer scientist. Yeah. And I, and you would admit, they, I, I, I won't tell you the deal. I won't say out loud the deal that they gave you, but it was a it really was, great it deal. It was a serious deal, yeah. It was a deal that would have retired you in five years or ten years or whatever. But I remember you were you were doubting it. You were here in New York City, and you got hit by a bus, and that convinced That's, you. you. You remember that? I walked out of the interview... And I was going to head home, and I was worse than that. My wife was in New Haven. We were living in New Haven at the time, and she was on bed rest with a baby because uh, the baby was like premature. And they take me to Beth Israel Hospital from this bus accident. I got hit at Broad and Wall Street, and the bus just hit me. I heard these people screaming, "Look out! He's going to get hit!" And I looked up, and it was me. And and the nurse has to call my wife, and I'm telling her, "Don't say the wrong thing," because she's like going to go into a premature labor. Was, I just remember she's. I still remember the woman said. Uh, don't worry, he's in the hospital, but he's okay. And I was thinking that was like the wrong thing to say, but now, somehow that, it all worked out. Right, and and do you ever regret it? Because obviously you would have made a lot of money and I that have, was a there great were, deal there were times, there were There were times after that when I like was hurting for money and you know now we're, you know, things have changed a lot. But yeah, there were times when I thought that would have been an interesting life. But no, I, I don't think You didn't so. want to do it anyway. 
yeah, they, I don't, they I don't told know, I don't you know if I would have like a hundred hours a week. And I didn't know if I was would have been good at it. Actually, it was interesting. It was early. It was really early. This guy's very smart. He would have yeah. been good. Uh, but the other thing I want to I want to close with just to think about because we didn't get to all five, but my third has an interesting story. So, but and to all of your points, the, the the kind of homework assignment is what was his edge? John Templeton, who later became the head of uh, a huge mutual fund, he kind of was the the forerunner of the entire mutual fund industry. But his very first big investment, 1939, the market had been in a in a depression for. 10 years, he took, he took all his money and he put a hundred dollars in every single stock that was trading below a dollar on the New York stock exchange. That's all he did. It was just a blanket trade wow. on every stock that was trading in the pennies on the New York stock exchange. And he, I don't know, made some huge amount on that money and used that to start his first mutual fund business. So that's like it, a Nassim Taleb, you're basically betting on the black swan event. Yeah. And so, so he could have, if he had done it any other year, he would have lost the money. And, uh, but this year is the beginning of war. Boom, that reinvigorated the market and he made the money. But the question is, to your point, how did he really, I, I encourage people to research, how did he remove the risk from that decision? Why then? It's an interesting story. Uh, he's an interesting story. And again, he created a, his own branch of the in investment history by starting the mutual fund industry, just like Warren Buffett, you know, did his thing and Jim Simons did his thing. And I'll argue, you know, Carl Icahn did his thing, but... Thanks very much for hey, this was the, fun. The five Thanks, greatest Steve. investor of all time. We only really talked about two of them, and maybe a little the third, but we talked about <laughs> investing in Steve, general. Steve tried to keep us on track, <laughs> and we talked about how to for manage. once in my life. <laughs> but I think we did hit the main points, which is yeah. how are you managing risk? How are you getting your edge? What are you doing that's uniquely you and and all and other components uh, of what makes particularly these. And first I want, two I want great. to say it's possible. I mean, I've met people. Who have made an incredible amount of money in investing, so it's possible. Yes, it is possible. I know. I know. It, it is possible. By the way, I kind of narrowed this window to include the publicly known people yeah. playing with billions of dollars because that's an extra challenge. But I know plenty of people who privately have made significantly more in terms of percentage returns than these guys. But that's a topic for another podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks, Merrick. Thanks, yeah, for, thank you, Merrick, for joining us. Thanks, Steve, once again. And we have the Thanks, next Eric podcast to begin. Bye, guys. Bye.